friends. Welcome to the Universal Sisterhood podcast. We're hoping to create a place where women can delve deeper, lift their gaze higher, live freer, laugh louder, smile brighter, and be the authentic woman she was designed to be. Every human heart is created to be known, loved, and understood. So this is the place where women can share their story. Welcome to episode 65. In today's episode, I chat with Teresa Hanna. Teresa is a mum who knows what it's like to fight for her son. In 2013, in an Easter homily, Pope Francis said, We must bear the victory of Christ's cross to everyone, everywhere. Christ's cross, embraced with love, does not lead to sadness but to joy. And Teresa is such a testament to this statement. Whether as a bystander or a participant, we all have seen and know soul-numbing trauma. It may be in our very homes, it may be on the television, but we actually can see it and, and, and have some kind of concept of it. Inevitably, suffering will find us. And the world tells us to run away from it. But as you will hear in Teresa's story, she not only ran towards it, but she embraced it. For Teresa and her family, their passage of suffering came two days after their beautiful little boy was born. When you listen to Teresa's story, you'll hear how she fights for her son lovingly and she joyfully embraces the cross that comes with it. As I was trying to get this podcast together, I had so many interruptions. I had kids asking questions. I had phones ringing, text messages going off. By the time I got round to it, it was 11.30 and I was still trying to get this thing uploaded and it wasn't happening. And I was getting a little bit frustrated. And Teresa's son's name kept ringing in my ear. And his name is Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means Christ is with us. And I knew that right then that yes, Christ is with us in Emmanuel. And Christ comes to us in every single person that he places in our midst. He comes to us in every person that um, we come across. And it is through these encounters that we find Christ. We see Christ face to face. And I just want to leave you with one question. How do we respond to that encounter? How do we respond to that person who is right in front of us, who is a Christ bearer? I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do, please share it with a friend. Have a lovely week. My name is Teresa Hanna. I'm a mum in Western Sydney and right at the moment here um, in isolation really um, is I'm a mum of five whose hubby works out in the manufacturing sector and trying to homeschool four children while looking after my severely disabled youngster son. Wow. It- I find it difficult, so it must be so, so challenging for you. So I take my hat off 
to you and I applaud you for your patience and your courage to face every morning because it must be a challenge. It is a challenge, yeah. I think, um, yeah, it, and every day is a new day. Every day is a different day. Mm. And um, you wake up and you don't know what you're going to get, really. Yeah. Has, has um, Emmanuel taught you that or did you oh, know that before? You know, I think um, Emmanuel, since Emmanuel's been here, life is definitely um, physically different but very much spiritually different. Mm-hmm. It has flipped everything into what you never knew or you could never have imagined living through um, uh, spiritually, really. Um, and thank God for my faith because I can see that going through what we had, I say had because I'm very comfortable with what what we are uh, facing at the moment. Um, I looked from it from an outsider's perspective and put myself in the shoes of someone who did not believe in God. And I don't think that, I don't know how, not that I don't think, I don't know how people who don't have faith in God get through these challenges. Wow. Yeah. Teresa, would you be so kind to share your story with us? Because my sister-in-law is a nurse at Westmead and she brought, she she texted me one night to say that there's a lady here who her children go to your school and she's so beautiful. Her outlook is really beautiful. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful witness you are to others of your faith and your um, courage and your witness to hope and life and the beauty of life, no matter how it comes. So, so could you please share your story with us? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, say so, uh, before Emmanuel came along, you know, we had four children. They're all quite close in age, um, you know, happy with life everyone's healthy you know we think we're you know we're doing god's will um you know and then you know baby number five comes along and as a mum already to four you think right you know baby number five is just going to slip straight into family life we're going to go to the hospital have the baby come home you know just get into a routine um but that didn't happen at like not one bit. <laughs> um, you know, we had, I had a manual in the hospital. The pregnancy was fine. The birth was fine. Went home the next day and it was within, within 12 hours of being home, I think, or within, yeah, not even a day had passed and I was back in the hospital um, with him and things had just gone from, I'm not going to say from bad to worse or like from good to bad, but my world stopped. It like literally paused and I was faced with what is going on right now. And it seemed to me, and I know this is very cliche, but it seemed to me like I was just watching what was going on and it wasn't actually happening to me. Um, So I had to call the ambulance because... um, his temperature had dropped 
and he was very unresponsive. And I actually at that point was just didn't think anything of it. I just thought, oh, he's probably just a little bit sick or something. But um, he was actually dying um, just very slowly. Um, he shouldn't have been alive at that point, to be honest, um, uh, like after knowing what had actually happened. But we'd gone to the hospital. Um, there was an influx of people in the, the emergency department uh, doing various testing for him um, and really nothing happening or nothing that I understood what was going on other than one nurse always just asking me, are you okay? You know, can I get you anything? You know, the doctors are still doing more tests. We haven't found anything yet. We're still trying to find out what's wrong. And I just sat there and all I could really think about was uh, I have to ring the school. <laughs> the kids aren't going to school. Um, how am I going to ring the secretary? Who do I call? And this is the early hours of the morning. So I just rang, you know, one of my good mum friends and just said, look, look, could you just contact the school and let them know the kids are not coming to school? I mean, I don't know what my mind was just shifted from what was happening. Mm -hmm. Um I am more. I'm, I am like that. I, I kind of worry about everybody um, and not focus on the like what's actually happening to me. I suppose a lot of mums are like that anyway. Um, but whatever was happening with Emmanuel was out of my hands at that point in time. So I had to put my trust in all the medical staff, and um, you know. I wasn't even in contact with my husband because he was at home with the children. I just contacted my good friend, ring the school, make sure that they know that, you know, my kids aren't going to school um, and that something is wrong with the baby um, and that when I would find out anything, I would I would let them know. Mm. Um, that was the very early hours of that morning. So he was about just two days old at that time or like, you know, 48 hours. Um I think after like four or five hours, they still didn't know what was going on with him. They'd called NETS, which is a neonatal transport service for seriously ill children. Um, they have these uh, senior paediatric doctors who try and look at things holistically if senior doctors at the hospital don't know what's going on and try and evaluate the situation. They had... A, phone call, a conference phone call with Westmead and Randwick Kids Hospital, you know, relaying all these symptoms, all the test results. And someone, one of the specialists on the conference call had a, a had a suspicion as to what he might have and that he'd need to be transferred immediately to get treatment. So Emmanuel was... Um, prepped up and put into a crib and we got into uh, a, like an ambulance as such. It was, it's not an, an ambulance that a normal person would, you know, get to their house, but um, it's a transport ambulance mm -hmm. and we were rushed over to Randwick and there was a team waiting on standby at Randwick to receive him in the uh, uh, intensive care unit and when I we rushed, lights and sirens, things happening in the ambulance on the way, I wasn't allowed to sit in with the back at the back with them 
So I was at the front with the driver and I just had my rosary beads in my hand. I was sitting in one of those giant nappies that you wear after you have a baby because I just had him. Yep. I had no change of clothes. I had no change of underwear. I had no hygiene products. No breast pads or anything. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just my wallet and his blue book. I had my rosary beads in my hand and I just, like, I I was going in between praying the rosary and just talking intimately with our Lord, Mm -hmm. just asking him to please get us there and, if anything, just let me hold him one more time Mm -hmm. before he goes. If he's, (laughs) oh, look, I'm crying. I'm crying. (laughs) You know, just let me hold him. One more time before he goes. Because if it's your will, then so be it, Mm. you know. Um, And when we got there, like, and the driver was actually, the driver was fantastic. I can't even tell you. He was preparing me, you know. When we get there, just know that they're going to rush him out and I'm going to, and I'm going to bring you in, you know, after them. They're going to be running and, and they were running, you know. I've never seen anything like that before. So, you know, I just stayed with the driver and we, like, walked as quick as we could through the hospital. They had to run quite a fair way from where we were. Um, and there was a massive team. Then I had the admin lady who who runs the ICU and she just whisked me away and it was all nice and dandy. And it's like, hi, Teresa, come come with me. I'm just going to show you around. And it was like, you know, like you get to a hotel and I'm just going to show you where your bathroom is and your bedroom is and all that. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? But like there's a, yeah, there's a purpose in that, you know. She's there to be that fresh face, that really nice person to just take your mind quickly off what's happening so that the doctors can get done what they need to do and you're not there and you're not having to deal with all of that. Yeah. And um, and then I remember, like, you know, I actually, in, in amongst that, my husband and my father-in-law just, like, just shot past me in the hallway because they had just got there. And then the someone took them to a manual and I'm like, like I think my husband just was shocked at the sight of me, really. Because, like, here I am dealing with my son this whole time, having not relayed any information, but we're at Randwick Children's Hospital. Get there as soon as you can. Um, And then not long after, you know, I I was taken back to where Emmanuel was. And by that time, oh, there was just tubes everywhere, just everywhere. I can't even, like, I can describe to you, but it's, you just, if you haven't seen it before, yeah, it's yeah. it's just, yeah, you haven't seen it. It's like, it, yeah, he had already uh, um, the, the ventil, like a respirator, so he, he was intubated. Um, his eyes were covered, like they'd put, it would look like little goggles or something that put over his eyes. Um, he had lines everywhere he had them in his neck he had them in his arms he had them in his groin he had them in his legs there was so many machines just everything going on and you know after everything just kind of calmed a little you know they pulled me into this room they started talking about what they think it might be 
you know what what he might have and I I just remember relaying the last 20 like 48 hours over and over to this person and this person and this person in the meantime (laughs) my milk has come in I'm sweating I'm shaking I'm exhausted my body starts to shut down and thank God for my sister-in-law who just said right this is enough she can't she can't even sit up you know let alone speak to you guys anymore she needs to rest she needs to shower she needs to change you know um so they kind of got me a room to stay in at the hospital where I could go and have a shower and and sleep and I had to because my body was shutting down like just shutting down and I knew from that moment already I was getting mastitis because my breasts were engorged and from my previous babies like I um I have an abundance of milk very early on so you know I needed to express I was in pain I needed antibiotics no um (laughs) in a hospital full of doctors no one could give me a script for antibiotics I had to find a medical center out on the street in a place I didn't know. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely insane. The catalyst for that. So don't feel, I know it's a disappointment, but you did that. Yeah, I get that. that And I did have actually afterwards, like, um, so I can't remember exactly who was there. The priest, my husband, my sister-in-law was there. Um, and they just told me, like, you know, the next day that they couldn't believe the, um, like, oh, I don't know what the word is, like, just the, the, the essence of it when, it when he was being baptised. Mm-hmm. Being in such um, a place and being in a place where people don't believe in God. People don't understand why is this person, why are they baptizing this this baby for? Like, what, what's the meaning of it? What is this? And and you know, there was witnesses to this beautiful event that took place. Like, pe- other parents that had their children in there were like, you know, kind of going, oh, what's going on? And why is you know, what's this man doing? And why is it so quiet over there? And mm-hmm. it like it was just the stories that came up, even from like the doctors and the nurses, just saying that was just the most beautiful thing. And then the priest, when he was leaving, (laughs) sorry? There was a shift in the universe. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, some, I think some parents even asked to, ask the priest on his way out to come and bless their child, you know, as to to do it in in a place where, I mean, a public place. It's not like, you know, people know a church is there and, you know, what might go on in a church, but when it's out in the open to people who don't witness these things in everyday life or it's not in their everyday life it's something amazing to see I think yeah in their like for them it's something yeah. that they'll always remember although you know it starts yeah. them questioning and thinking where mm-hmm. otherwise they wouldn't ordinarily see that or think about that so yeah that's true before I had uh, gone to rest they told me that 
they thought it was um, a disease or disease. I don't know really if it's a disease. It's um, something inherited called OTC deficiency. Now, it's something you, you're born with. It's mm -hmm. in your genetics. It's passed down, but it can also just spontaneously happen at conception as mm -hmm. well. Um, and they knew how to treat it. And that's what they were doing at that time until such time that they had to formally diagnose it because they had to do a genetic test. Mm -hmm. Fine transcarbamylase is a enzyme in your liver. And what your liver does is um, convert all the waste products into ammonia, which is toxic to our bodies, and it's then passed through um, out of our bodies through the urine. Um, now, the uh, ornithine transcarbamylase enzyme is totally missing from Emmanuel's liver he, that he was born with. So his liver couldn't do the process of, of getting rid of the ammonia. So instead of the ammonia um, being eradicated from his body, it was being recirculated through his bloodstream and he was being starved of oxygen to his brain. So from, And this is from the protein that we eat. So from the minute I started breastfeeding him after he was born, it was killing him, yeah. which I didn't know, no. you know. No. Um, and by, obviously, by that 48-hour period of time, it was too late. It His was just too late. Yeah. It yeah. was too much. Um, yeah. So, so So is that common? How, how, how common is, is OTC? OTC is one in 50 to 80,000 births. Okay. So it's extremely rare. Mm -hmm. um, it is more common in males than in females. Um, and it is usually passed down through the mother, through the mother's DNA. Um, but I had a test and I was found not to be a carrier so that he had a what they call de novo mutation, which means that at conception there was a mutation in that in that gene uh -huh. that caused him to be deficient of that enzyme in his liver. So um, I was told that if I hadn't done anything at that point in time, like call the ambulance then if I hadn't noticed that there was anything wrong, he would have been dead in the morning. He wouldn't be here. That's just a fact. Wow. Um, how he lasted that long in the first place, I don't know. Yeah. How he survived through all of this, I don't know. Uh, look, I don't think that my husband came to terms with it for a very long time, a very, very long time. But from the very beginning, I was not too phased about what was going on. Like I was more um, emotional because I, I was exhausted. And I just had a baby yeah. running around like a mad woman. My breasts are rock hard. I've got to express. I've never expressed before. What's going on? I don't know, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I had to, uh, I had to emotionally and spiritually support my husband because I'm the stronger one there. There's the beauty of the feminine genius right there. 
Yeah. We complement um, each other. Yeah. We have this inner kind of strength that they don't have and they have that outer strength that we mm. don't have. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And um look I, I and actually one of the nurses was saying like you know you might be a bit shocked as to how he looks cuz he just had um the dialysis machine put on. It's quite a massive machine. I've never seen it before. It's just another addition to to what was going on. So they it, he had to have his blood filtered because the ammonia was within the bloodstream. So he was on a dialysis machine for seven days to clean his blood of the ammonia that he had, as well as all the medications that were doing that. Seven days. Seven days. to. So, okay, a normal person, you and I, our ammonia levels are between, say, you know, 10 and 50 normally, Any, anybody normal. His went up, up to eight, 1,800. Wow. And he shouldn't be here. In a tiny little body. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In a in a small small person. Mm -hmm. So, um, a couple of the doctors that we'd spoken to in the next few days said that they hadn't seen like that year. So it was June already. That year they'd seen two before him, and before that they hadn't seen a case in ten years. Was like wow. I mean, I'd never heard of it. Obviously, um, but we. Um, the next day after the MRI, um, we were sorry. Before this, we were um, obviously we'd been in touch with the social worker there at the hospital, and I, I find comes around the next day and she says, "Look, you know they they want to um, they're going to call you into a meeting because they want to they want to um, explain to you what they found in the MRI and just tell you you know what what to expect and what you know from here on in." All right, sure. Oh, we were pulled into a room with about 20 people. That's not intimidating, is it? No, it's not. And one person spoke. Wow. So uh, at first I was like, well, why couldn't we just sit here with that one person? <laughs> like, why all these people? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, like you said, intimidating, not much. But we had the social worker sitting with us, so I felt a bit better actually with her next to me because we'd known her for a week. Yeah. And and you know she she made herself quite comfortable with us and and us to her. Um. And he goes the the doctor. Um. Okay, well you know we've done the MRI and this is what we found and it's not really good and and I'm like, well, will you get on with it? We'll just say it because I'm just like. Just say it straight. <laughs> like was saying it's not looking good. A lot of his brain has been damaged, and we can't tell you what it's going to look like for him in the future. We don't know um, if he's going to do anything. They pretty much made it out that his life is not worth living. And would you like us to continue? treating him and I'm like like kind of look at my husband and my husband's already like the tears are flowing already like he's he's had it you know he's done and I'm just sitting there like you know going what sorry but can you can you just say that in a different way I'm like pretty much in my brain and I wanted to scream it in that room he's like are you telling me to kill him are you telling me to just let him die like what sorry can you like is he not worth it? Like, 
what is it? You know, I just wanted the absolute black and white of it. So then they gave us time to think, oh, no, you don't have to answer now and blah, blah, blah and all that. So they left us alone in the room and they all left. With the social security? No, she, she stayed for a bit and she said, okay, guys, you know, stay here as long as you like. Um, come out whenever you're ready. You don't have to answer to anybody. You know, you don't have to do anything. This is your time. You, you do what you need to do and, you know, all the rest of it. And then she left and I just had to console my husband. Yeah. Because as far as my husband con was concerned, he was already dead. So, and I'm like, uh, you know, do you know you, when, when you're put in that position and you actually, like, start to take on the thoughts of the people around you? And are like, are they right? What kind of a life would it be with him for him? Like, you know, what, what if little seed of doubt? Yeah, yeah. So, and then yeah, the enemy just likes to do that. <laughs> and, it, and I think it was a bigger thing for them that we already had a big family. We already had four children. What was the life going to be like for them to have this burden put on us? Um, anyway, so we went off and we spoke about it and we, st like you said, that seed of doubt, is it better if he, if we don't let him suffer like this? But then, you know, when you start to like the thoughts scream at you or, you know, is it the Holy Spirit, your guardian angel, our lady going like, why are you thinking like that? Like who told you to think like that? Who who said these things to you? Why are you why are you um, entertaining these thoughts that are quite opposite to what you believe? You've always believed, yeah. And you've always believed, and just because you've never been in the situation before doesn't mean that just because these people who think what, like, their opinion is right. Mm. It's not right for you. It's not right, period. Um, now, while we were in that meeting, and mind you, in ICU, there's only allowed to be immediate family. So, like, of the child, the parents, a sibling, or the grandparents. Now, they weren't there anyway, so we had our best friend, and um, my husband's sisters with a manual while we were in the meeting. And they were being told by the nurses looking after Emmanuel that it would be so, it would be um, so, um, like what a life it would be for them if he was with us. And um, it would just be a burden on the whole family, like the parents, we'd be struggling you know, the children, like, to see their brother like that and all this, like, and and they were like, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, are you not humane? <laughs> like, what's the point in looking after him then, like, right now? Are you not caring for this person who's here in front of you? Anyway, we were told that weeks later, but that, that comes into play how they are thought-driven 
or a lot I'm not saying everybody but a lot of them act out of they they, they act out of charity but yes. they're also acting out of fear mm. because they don't have what you have yeah they don't have that anchor so yeah. they're kind of like floating in this sea of doubt and 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 the fear of suffering like yes. you show so beautifully that suffering's nothing to fear yeah. whereas we're always being fed that you know we try to avoid suffering yeah, yeah i think yeah that's a very big thing i i see that all the time especially because you know we're in the hospital a lot um people yeah that suffering in our time now like in the world is a very bad thing for you whereas i'm quite the opposite i went I, and don't get me wrong I, I'm a complainer. I do. I complain about a lot of things. But deep down inside, I know it's best to suffer. And I'll, like, bring it on. <laughs> like, more the better. You know, like, uh, I'd rather do it here mm. than somewhere else because I know that that's to come. Mm. Um, so after um, we got out of this meeting, and we, we, you know, we had a lot of time to think. And I said, you know what? Let we don't have we don't have to make any decisions now. Let, let's get let's just go and sit with Emmanuel because we're just take we're just wasting time sitting here on our own when I can go sit next to him. Like, why? What are we doing here? So I got up, and I like I was walking really fast. I'm like, you know, I want to see my son. I want to see my son. And we went and sat next. Like I went and sat next to him, and you know, I'm like, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, you know. And he opened his eyes <laughs> and he looked at me and I went, Hannah, how can you tell me <laughs> that I'm going to say, yeah, you know what, you can just cease all medication, take his tubes out, turn the machines off, let him go. <laughs> I was like, no way. And I just said from the, like that moment I stepped next to him, I said to the nurse, I said, you tell those doctors that, you, that they're going to keep him alive at all costs. There is no way we're ceasing treatment. My son is alive and I'll fight for him every step of the way. However I have to do it, we're doing it because he's my son and he's breathing, you know. And, yeah, we had to take one step at a time. He was on, on um, like, a ventilator, so he was intubated. And they're like, you know, we don't know if he's going to breathe if we take it out. And I said, well, you won't know if you don't take it out, will you? And I, well, what do we do if he doesn't breathe? Put it back in. Easy. And and so we just took one step at a time. And then when they said that they think he was, you know, well enough, they took it out. Lo and behold, he breathed on his own, you know. So then he was just put on oxygen. And then, they, you know, they, they see how his progression is. And as he progressed, he weaned off oxygen, you know. And he weaned off one medication and he weaned off another medication and another tube came out and another tube came out. And it just was like this really slow progression of, um, you know, eliminating all these little things. And then all of a sudden I'm like, they're like, oh, do you want to hold him? And I'm like, oh, my God, yeah, yes, you know. And then it was a very slow process to pick him up. There was like three nurses, you know. And so was that the first hold since home? Yes, absolutely, yeah. So that was amazing. And, um, and how many days was that? Oh, it was well over a week and a half, I think. <laughs> So that was really good. Wait for that hold. 
Sorry. In the ambulance, you said you prayed that you yeah. let me hold. Yeah. So that was like that long wait. Um, and in the meantime, you know, just to make note, look, I don't know, you know, who's familiar with Randwick because I wasn't. I'd never been to Randwick before. And the first thing I did when I was there, uh, like this Randwick Hospital, and you can actually, like, if you just walk up a bit the road, you can see the sea through the buildings. Yeah. And I kind of looked and I'm like, oh, there's a Catholic church there. <laughs> and it's the most magnificent Gothic yeah. church. And I walked in and I was like, have I just gone to heaven or what? Like, it was just amazing. And the weight lifted off your shoulders when you walk through the door because it's just like, uh, it wasn't even just knowing that our Lord is there in, in flesh, but just this peace. I was home. Yeah. Like, because you're, you're not home, yeah. but you are there. You are home. Yeah. yeah. So I made myself every day go to church, like whether it was for mass or not, just to be in there and I just felt so much better. Yeah. Thank God. Like, you know, it was literally like a two-minute walk from the hospital. So it was amazing to have that there. Yeah. I was able to speak to the parish priest who was there. You know, I asked him to come and give Emmanuel a blessing. I mean, yeah. like Emmanuel's got his fighting spirit from his mother. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, you know, things progressed where he, he, he got moved to another bed. Um, we could give him a bath. That was really nice. Um, and then they moved him out to a ward. So he's like graduating out of ICU. And then, you know, I kept pushing like, you know, is there a possibility we can get to Westmead because Westmead's much closer to home? Because I was driving every day to Randwick after a week. I said to my husband, you've got to go back to work, not because we need to earn money, but because you need to, to do something normal. Yeah. You know, um, so I, um, the kids were being looked after and I would go in every day. But, I mean, you know, that's a, that was a long, like it was, it was just and so all, exhausting. All the while, you've just had a baby. So yeah. what do you do with the milk? Are you expressing so, or are you um, yeah. to get rid of your milk? Or? So, no. Um, they asked me I think, what I wanted to do. Like, you know, I had I didn't even know that there were tablets to take to suppress the milk. I had no idea about that. It's the first time I'd ever heard about it. And I'm like, but couldn't he have my milk? Like we were try, we're talking with these metabolic doctors about, you know, what he's gonna drink when he eventually starts eating food, like because how are they gonna monitor the protein in taking my milk and all this stuff? And I was like, Oh, I go, surely if not Emmanuel someone can use this milk so I expressed and we used every last drop of that but expressing um it didn't last very long um I was not able to express everything um I half weeks or five weeks of expressing and that then that was it um yeah but um, we used all of that. It actually lasted quite a long time because when we finally got home, uh, we were um, 
transferred from Randwick after three weeks and then we spent another three weeks at Westmead when he was six weeks old. I think that's when we took him home. Wow. Um, yeah. It was amazing to go home and the kids were just ecstatic to have mum home and the baby brother. Mm. And, you know, they're all different ages, so they all understood it differently. They all took it differently. You know, it was hard to, I mean, it was, it was hard for me to, con, to um, deal with all of them as well, like deal with all the different emotions. I think one of them, is, um, one of my children just acted as if nothing ever happened. <laughs> so whether he suppressed all of it or, or not, I, I don't know. He still kind of acts like that to this day. He's kind of like, yeah, Emmanuel's just a normal person, you know, whatever. Doesn't really treat him any differently. <laughs> but, um, so, so what's life like now? Um, life's very different from when we left the hospital then because um, I, I should have pointed this out very early on when we are at Randwick, one of the metabolic doctors said very slightly to us that there's no cure, but if he has the liver transplant, he won't have OTC anymore. <laughs> and we're like, what? Sorry? did you? What did you say? Like there's, there's a way out, is there? Because basically... Um, uh, he he would not that, that, that it would be a high probability that he would not survive past two if we just continued the way we did with mm -hmm. him trying to restrict his diet would have had to have constant ammonia level checks to check is it going up is it going down how much medication does he need because the medication he was having was to eradicate the ammonia because it, he couldn't do it himself mm -hmm. and the, there would always be the possibility that if the ammonia levels raised just a little he would then go back to hyperammonemic shock and have a fit have a seizure have more damage done to the brain like you know it, it could the possibilities could have been endless so we held on to that with everything that we had and kept bugging the metabolic team at the hospital at Westmead. When do we talk about transplant? When do we talk about transplant? When do we talk about transplant? And they got so fed up that they just said, we've made an appointment with the gastro team <laughs> and we're going to get them to talk you through what the deal is, what the process is. And then I remember that day, like we were really super excited to, you know, to hear all about it. Mind you, we've done, done our own research, but you know what, doing your own research doesn't, does not touch anywhere near sitting with medical professionals yeah. and getting information from them and asking them questions and all that kind of stuff. So pretty much it was a very quick, quick chat. We just sat down and we're like, oh, yeah, so, you know, we, we understand Emmanuel has this. And you do realise that, um, you know, having a transplant doesn't cure him. It just gives him a different disease. And we're like, well, so how so? Well, then you have to live with someone who's immunocompromised for the rest of their life and has to take medication for the rest of their life. And I said, well, isn't that better than possibly not living past two years of age? But 
I think I'll take that chance. Like, you know, because the, the transplant in itself is a very, very risky operation, you know, especially at a young age, depending if, you know, how long you're going to wait on a list for. But if we wanted to do it, they would support us. We would have to do a week of testing to see if you fit the criteria to have transplant. So we're like, where do we sign? What do we do? Where do we go? What, you know, like, let's get this process moving. That's all, that was our goal from from when we got home at six weeks. We're going to get our boy a transplant. That's what he needs to survive. That's what he needs to live. So we're going to do it. This is what we're doing. And all I had to do was to keep him alive. Mm-hmm. And that meant to make sure he had his medication and make sure he had his feeding, like, regimented, on the clock, without fail, everything. <laughs> that yeah. must be pretty exhausting. It was. I, I honestly, that first six months is a total blur to me. Like, it's just a blur. I, I don't remember much of it. I, I, I remember bits. And sometimes my husband, like, I remember when we did that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, yeah, wow. Do you, like, do you ever wonder how you got through it? I, I don't, well, I don't wonder because I know. I know. Mm-hmm. I just know. Like um, I resigned myself very early on, uh, like when Emmanuel was home. Like, you know what? Uh, you know, I could, I could wallow in the sadness of all this and do the why, why did this happen to us and I don't understand and all that, you know. But I said, no, you know what? I have him. I have four other children. I have to be a role model for them. If I wallow in self-pity, what does that show them? What does that show people around me? What am I modelling to not just my children but to everyone who comes across me that this is the way to act, um, um, you know, in these situations? I don't, you know, this was the time to stand true to my faith, put my trust in God and just let him guide me. And I, re- I actually, this one night I remember just like him crying during the night and me just pouring my heart out out loud to our Lord going Lord I know you're doing this for a reason and I don't understand it but I'll accept it and I give it back to you like I used to say like you know I'm standing at the foot of the cross and you're bleeding on me and I don't understand it but I'll do it because you're asking it of me Mm. and if this is my way to heaven then so be it um that's that's it you know and over time the suffering becomes amazing Mm. and there's always something different like things just things are ever changing here like I can't tell you how quickly things can change here because they can change in an instant but you have to learn to adapt to each change um, and just go with the flow. And, um, you know, like you said about um, your sister-in-law having witness to you about me, I, I, 
I actually like hearing, like not like hearing that because it makes me, you know, oh, look at her or whatever, but it's humbling to know that I made a difference in that that person in that short, you know, in that short time mm-hmm. that she came across me. And I'm that mum, look, you know, not a lot of people are familiar with just hospitals in general, but the children's hospital can sometimes, well, you know, for a lot of people, it's it's not a good place to be. Their kids are sick. Some kids are sick, like, to the point where they're going to die in the hospital or their journey is that they're not going to survive their illness. And a lot of people are are, are very sad and it's all sad and all that. And I get that. And, and that's, you know, that's it is what it is. <laughs> But I'm the mum who, even with my son who's got like a temperature of 39 degrees, might have a bacterial infection, could have sepsis, might die the next day, and I'm with a smile on my face walking through the hospital because I'm just, I know that it's the best place for him at that time, you know, and I'm not sad about it because I've accepted the fact that at any point in time our Lord may call him. Our Lord may call me. You know, how do I know? Who am I to say when it's my time or it's my son's time, you know, or anyone else for that fact? Do you think gratitude plays a big part in that um, space? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, um, like I said before, I, I'm at, like, I'm very, um, oh, I don't know how to word it, like, I believe that, you know, God has planned it all out and that there is a reason why this has happened, why we're faced with these challenges. Because, like, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago, like, you know, oh, yeah, I'd love to have a big family, um, lots of children, we'll do this and that and be happy and go on holidays and all that kind of stuff where everything has just come to, like, we're not spontaneous anymore. Nothing is spontaneous around here. Everything is planned to the finest detail to make sure that we're, you know, well equipped with what we need if we leave the house, where we can go, how far we can be from a hospital and such and whatever. But um, God allows these things for a reason, not only for yourself, but for every single human being that you come across from that day forward when your life changed. And you have the grace, the grace. I hope so. (laughs) There's no other explanation for it. You get the grace to accept those challenges and bear those crosses and that's why we can't compare because we don't have what you have. Yeah, a a lot of people that I came across within, say, like um, the first year of his life. So he had, um, you know, we did his week of testing. He was able to get on the list. He actually had his transplant within the first two weeks of being on the list. Wow. He was only seven months old. Um, He spent two months in hospital after the transplant and we took him home and then that was a new, new thing. You know, we have to learn new things. And, and he's developing, right, but, you know, he's not hitting milestones because, you know, he's severely brain damaged. But we're learning as we go. Um, brain damage from the initial emergency. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that had happened, um, you know, initially. But, you know, 
because he's so young, we didn't know what was going to happen. So as as things go by, and this is going to be constant, as time goes by, we'll learn what he can, what he can't do, all of that stuff. But um, within like oh, after the transplant, we were we were advised by the hospital that it wouldn't be prudent of us to take him to church because it would be a very big risk to his health because he was severely immunocompromised. And, and you're more immunocompromised in that first year after you have a transplant because you're on so much medication and your immunity is suppressed so much that any little germ, you know, can send you straight back into hospital, which it did. It happened many times. But so, you know, we used to do the swap and all that with going to church and I'd go and then my hubby would go and then you know, take some of the kids and all of that. And um, I would come across people and, and and they would stop me and I wouldn't even know them. And they'd be like, oh, you're Emmanuel's mum. Oh, yeah, I am. Oh, you know, we're praying for you. And I'm like, thank you very much. And, like, you know, I hope, you know, hope he gets better and all that kind of stuff. And some people would even say, oh, we're praying for a miracle. And I'm, and I'm like, I'd already come to the conclusion that I'm not going to, me personally, I'm not asking our Lord for a miracle. There, there was a reason that that he did this. Um, I don't believe that, I'm not saying that I shouldn't ask for Emmanuel's miraculous healing. In a way, I feel like we don't deserve it. But in another way, I'm like, this cross has been presented to us in this way. And I will see it through. Um, and these people are like, oh, you know, uh, you know, God bless you and... Um, you know, I hope this and that. And I would tell them just a quick, no, no, it's, you know, this is, you know, our journey. This is my cross. Um, Emmanuel's a beautiful boy. You know, we're, you know, the way we're dealing with that. And people would just be like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Or I never thought of looking at it that way. I said, you have your own problems. I don't know your problems. I don't know your struggles. I don't know your sufferings. But you have them too. And like you said, our Lord gives you the grace to overcome these things. You just need to make a choice to do so, mm. you know. Like um, I can't compare my cross with yours. It's different, yeah. you know. I, I have, um, I have a, another friend who um, is a child who has cerebral palsy just like my son. She's gone on to have another four children. I'm amazed at her, <laughs> you know. But her cross is different to mine, you know. Like we're we're we've all got the cross and we've all given are given the grace to carry it, but we need to make a choice. Are mm. we going to carry it willingly? Are we going to carry it reluctantly? Are we going to moan about it? You know, are we going to ask for help with it? Yeah, yeah. Like you know. We can't I, I have our own. Some are more visible. And yes. some very interior, yeah. but they're across nonetheless. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, well, you are a woman of great courage and great faith and are such a witness to everyone that comes in contact with you, Teresa. So I really want to thank you for being such a beautiful witness to, to life. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up. Yeah. Now, finish the podcast. I always ask my guests something that brought them joy this week. And I was wondering if you could think of anything that has yeah. brought them joy. I had 
I I was thinking about this before, and I and I do have something. So, um, on the twenty first, which I think was at the beginning of the week. Yeah. Um, it was my sister-in-law's wedding anniversary. To do something special instead of just saying happy anniversary. So there's been this thing where um, the wedding song that she had with her husband at the wedding, um, a lot of people thought that I'd actually sung it and, and recorded it, like pre-recorded it, because I, I like to sing and I hope that I have a nice voice <laughs> to say that. But I'm like, no, it wasn't me. It, you know, it's an old song. And I tried to learn it for her and surprised her with it, but it was very difficult. So I'm like, I can't do that. Anyway, I'd come across this song not long ago from um, a movie that I haven't even seen, but I liked it because I'd heard it another song from this movie and I just came across it while I was, you know, going on YouTube. And I, and And for the past couple of weeks I've been learning this song and I thought, geez, that's a really beautiful song, like, you could put it with so many different meanings towards so many different um, life, you know, events. Anyway, so I spent like half an hour <laughs> trying to record myself singing this song with backing audio. <laughs> and then um, I finally did it after many, many times and people telling me in the background to shut up and stop singing and all that. And I sent it on the group chat and I said, oh, this is dedicated to my beautiful sister-in-law and a happy anniversary. And gave that brought me joy because, do you know what, like even through like being at home and it's, it's really hard at the moment and all the things that we have to go through, I find joy in singing. I really do. It actually... Uh, and I know uh, this weird. It's not more of a spiritual thing because sometimes we, uh, I do it when I don't realize I'm doing it. But you escape the reality that you're in, and you enter your own world, and you're totally free. It's like you're nothing's wrong. And why? And you, we have to kind of take that into account as well. Like, is there things really wrong in our life? What is wrong, you know, I could go on forever anyway. But, um, yeah, that gave me joy. I liked I doing that. Yeah, <laughs> I love singing. I think music music gives uh, language to things that we can't verbalise. Yeah. What brought me joy was I have a rosary group on a, um, a Thursday morning at 6.30 in the morning and there's over 30 women that, Come on, and we pray the rosary together first thing in the morning, and that has brought me so much joy. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Just having women um, come together and, you know, whether it be in your group chat, you know, just good, strong women friendships are really necessary. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah. Beautiful. All right, Teresa, sounds like Emmanuel's gone to sleep. As no, he? he's very much <laughs> quiet. He's quietened down. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'll let you get on with your evening, but thank you so much. You're welcome. It was thank a joy you. speaking to you. You too.